0: From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists and cultural creators who are responding to the most pressing issues of our times. In the late aughts, my entire social circle was held in the thrall of TV shows like Breaking Bad.
1: Let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot, and you think that of me? I am the one who knocks.
0: Mad Men. That's what the money is for! And The Sopranos.
1: you
2: got no fucking idea what it's like to be number one. Every decision you make affects every facet of every other fucking thing.
0: Series that featured male anti-heroes. These shows had you rooting for complicated men who did bad things, like very bad things, but still managed to be charming, sympathetic, and even lovable. You would watch these men cheat on their wives, traumatize their children, commit literal murder, and walk away thinking, isn't he compelling? And these shows were written by smart people, so there would always be backstory and rationale. Even if these anti-heroes had wonky moral compasses, they could always justify their bad choices. Doesn't that sound terrible? I mean, maybe it didn't back in 2010 when the world was full of hope and I didn't know what the word emoluments meant. But now... Especially when you have, like, Kevin Spacey playing one such complicated man who does bad things but isn't a villain, and then it turns out that he's been accused of sexually assaulting teenage boys for decades. No, I'm sorry, that is a villain. And while the Kevin Spaceys of the world surely have their own stories full of pain and complexity, I'm just not that interested in those being the stories that we hear all the time. Thank God for Jamie Attenberg. She's written seven novels, and not a single one of them stars a male anti-hero. Her latest book, a family drama called All This Could Be Yours, does feature a Tony Soprano-like character as the patriarch of the family. But Attenberg puts him in a coma on the very first page and spends the rest of the book telling the stories of those he has abused. And she does it with both compassion and humor. I sat down with Jamie on the release date of All This Could Be Yours to talk about toxic masculinity, Me Too, and Gender Neutral Storage Units. Jamie Attenberg. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. You have a new book out, All This Could Be Yours. Yes. Um, And this book is about a family, it takes place when the patriarch of this family, the Tuckmans, suffers a heart attack. And I guess in broad strokes what happens from there.
2: So he has a heart attack and he's a he's like a very bad man. He's like a rich bad man and he's in the first two pages he has a heart attack and he goes straight into a coma where he remains for the rest of the book. So I sort of dispense with him that in that way. And I really was more interested in, in the family members and they all arrive Um, Or some of them don't but uh, they arrive at his bedside in New Orleans in a hospital in New Orleans and they start to contend with this person um, his wife Barbara um, his daughter Alex his uh, daughter-in-law Twyla and he has a son Gary and they're all sort of dealing with this person dying who they didn't like very much in fact in some instances, loathe.
0: You call him a bad man, and this is a phrase that recurs throughout the book. And it's applied not only to him, but to other men as well. Hmm.
2: What is a bad man? If there's so many ways. A man could be bad. It's Where true. do I start? But, um, All the colors of the rainbow. Right. <laughs> but in this instance, he is abusive. He is a criminal. He's sexist. He had a negative impact on his cho- children, both male and female, in that way. Less the abuse part for his kids, but more of about the way that he saw the world and, and the thing and the way that he tried to, you know, consciously or not, impact them with his, with his gaze. You see his
0: daughter Alex, um, who is a mother, newly divorced, trying to grapple with men who are bad in different ways from her father, mm. um, and how to teach her own daughter, who's a preteen as well, about how to deal with different types of men who are behaving
2: badly. I mean, there's a there's a, a funny little run in the book where it talks about all the things that she's done in order to get her father out of her head, where she talks about reading feminist books and going to feminist awareness camps and things like that. Um, and she has this moment, this long run of standing at his bedside and talking about all the bad things that he's done to her. And I think that she kind of represents a, a contemporary woman who as much as we know things, and as much as we're trying to fight off these these voices in our head, there's still sort of this thing that kind of remains. This like this little thin sliver of the patriarchy that runs through us that we would like to you know excise completely. Uh, so I think it's impacted her sense of self. I think it's impacted the kinds of men that she chose to partner up with. But also she's she's still like a strong, confident person. Um, and and I kind of wanted to give her half a shot in the world. And I do. I I have. Complicated feelings about her, but I do like her and I do have hope hope for her.
0: It feels like the patriarch of this family, Victor, the bad man, is in many ways a stand in for the patriarchy writ large and that nobody who he touches gets out unscathed. Yes, that is correct. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know how else Thank to. Thank you. S- we'll just end the interview <laughs> there. We'll just end the interview there. <laughs> correct. Let's burn it all down. Um, I mean, yeah, I wanted to talk about it. Okay, well, let me just preface this by saying that all of my books are character-driven. They do not work if the characters don't work. So whatever my political viewpoint is, it's not that it doesn't matter, but first and foremost, I hear characters talking to me. I want to know more about them. I'm interested in their flaws. I'm interested in figuring out how to be compassionate towards them. I'm building a relationship with them as as I write a book. What's going on outside in the world is always going to filter its way into my work. And I always have strong female protagonists. And I have a long history of having men being shitty to women in my books and, and really trying to process it. And so this is not my first book that I've talked about these matters at all. But it's perhaps the most head on that I've taken it. I really did want to know how this toxic male impacted them. So it's, re- it's really about the impact. And it's less about, I mean, I'm just so uninterested in him. But I do give him attention. But I'm like, I don't want to give you too much attention. Like you already get so much, you already suck up so much attention. So like, what does a book look, look like where we give him the least amount of attention and we really just stick to uh, what the future is going to be?
0: Bam, you're in a coma from page one. You're
2: in a coma. Goodbye. We'll see you later.
0: Wouldn't that be nice if you just had that
2: power in real life? (laughs) Listen, (laughs) there was a little bit of wish fulfillment going on in this book later on in the book, stuff like that. And I felt sort of weird about it a little bit, like the little bit of wish fulfillment that goes on here and there. And, And then I thought, if not here, then where? It's literally fiction. It's literally fiction. And also, it's my freaking book.
0: It is your freaking book, Jamie. Do what you want. Fulfill wishes, enact revenge fantasies, create the world you want to see. It's an artist's prerogative. Take for example the 17th century painter Artemisia Gentileschi. Now I remember her from art history class, and here's what they taught us. She was a woman, which was highly unusual, and she was the daughter of a famous painter, which was why she received any artistic training at all. What we were not taught is that she was at the center of a super fucked up rape trial in 1612. When Artemisia is a teenager, her father, Orazio Gentileschi, recognizes that his daughter has real talent. So he hires a private painting tutor for her, Agostino Tassi. This guy is all around bad news. He served time as a slave on a galley ship in Florence for an unspecified crime. He was accused of raping his sister-in-law, and he also probably hired hitmen to murder his wife. So he rapes the 17-year-old Artemisia, and not that this matters at all, but she was a virgin and she fights back. After the rape, Tassi promises to marry her. Artemisia is damaged goods now, after all, and the two are involved for about a year before he drops her. We know all these details because Artemisia presses charges. Well, sort of, because as a woman, she isn't allowed to press charges herself. Her father has to bring the suit, which isn't a case of violent crime or felony assault. It's a damaged property lawsuit. His daughter has lost bartering value, according to court documents. So the case goes to court, and Artemisia's character is attacked. Tassi's defense says she's not a virgin, she's a whore, and they present all these smutty letters to lovers she allegedly wrote. Except Artemisia is illiterate. So then it's basically he said, she said, right? But a woman's word is worth less than a man. So how can we be sure she's telling the truth? I know, torture. The judge orders Artemisia to be tortured in the courtroom in order to see if she recants. They weave ropes around her fingers and then tighten them, applying tremendous pressure to her joints. and. Through it all, she says, "It's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's true." Tassi is found guilty. Rack one up for just—oh, he didn't serve any time, right? Because the Pope interceded. So Tassi walks free. Artemisia is now infamous. She's quickly married off to a friend of a friend, but she does go on to have this remarkable painting career. Like she is exceptionally good. And what does she paint? she paints women. There's Susanna and the Elders from 1622, which features a young woman trying to shield her nakedness from the leering of these creepy older dudes. There's her self-portrait as St. Catherine, holding a metal-spiked wheel upon which the saint was sentenced to be tortured. Artemisia slash St. Catherine gazes out at the viewer, accusingly. And then there's the painting of Judith slaying Holofernes. It's a gory image, Judith, the beautiful widow Holofernes is invited into his tent, pins his head to the bed with her left hand. In her right hand is a sword, which she is using to cut his head off. His face is anguished. Hers is stony. If she couldn't have justice in real life, Artemisia would take revenge in
2: her paintings. I try to be as like realistic as possible and I don't think there's anything in this book that's unrealistic. I mean, there isn't like a moment in the book where like the um you know, the hospital floor opens up and he gets he gets thrown down to like, you know, devil comes up and takes him or something like that. That's not what it is. That's not what's happening in this book, but all my books every piece of art is political, you know? I think so. Don't you think so? I, I think guess, so. This but is I think like that political... some artists are
0: like, No, like my art isn't political, my art is pure aesthetic. No, that's not
2: me because it all filters in through you whether you know it or not whether you're consciously say you know choosing to call your character a very bad man which I do on page one or or not it's like it's in it's in you it's in you and if you're not letting that core instinct come on your work I'm guessing it's not that great a great work you know do you ever get that critique from people where it's like oh like why do you have to write something
0: so political
2: no I don't think so I feel like people can connect all different kinds of people can connect to it because it's because even if you're not like barbara who is married to victor who's kind of who is likes all of her shiny objects and she's she's definitely just a material like a cold materialistic kind of person even if you're not like that you might you probably know someone like that i've had so many people read this book and say that is my stepmother or that is or even that's my mother or i know it's my aunt or someone like that I want to stick with Barbara for a little bit and ask you if you wouldn't mind reading a little bit from the book.
0: So this is a chapter that deals with Barbara, the matriarch of the family, whose
2: husband, Victor, is in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is a good one. Mm, Thanks. Appropriate. I don't know
0: why I just said thanks as if I wrote it. No, I mean a good
2: selection. (laughs) I meant like a good selection. Right. I mean, I like it, but also that was appropriate. Her daughter wanted to know the truth. Did she now? She checked her step count as a means of distraction from this particular issue in her life. 12,000 steps so far today, this day of mortality. And then that moment was over, back to her daughter. The steps couldn't save her from all this thinking and feeling that needed to be done. She thought, what good would it do you, Alex, to learn all of your father's flaws, his crimes, his mistakes? What would be the point of it? to know anyone's weaknesses that had never helped Barbara in any way, to know their strengths, what they had to offer her, how they could surround her with things she desired, how they could shield her from the world. Those were the things worth knowing about a person. She continued to walk the rectangular path of the hospital floor. Thin and pretty, pretty and thin, her mantra as she walked, one she'd repeated for decades. Where it came from precisely, she was unsure, only that it had been there for so long, it was too late to shake it now. All she knew was if she kept moving, perhaps she would arrive there at that destination, pretty and thin. Oh, Barbara. Oh, Barbara. How did you feel about Barbara? I mean,
0: you treat your characters with such a great deal of compassion and generosity that I think as someone reading the book, you're inspired to do the same, Um, which I was grateful for because she is kind of a frosty bitch. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I appreciated that you helped me see the redeemable qualities in her and that she ultimately was a victim she was a victim her entire life do you think so you don't think she was complicit i mean i guess this is a larger question that i have is we judge we tend to judge women who are with bad men harshly yeah i'm thinking about melania a lot do i have to Can I get your name, please? I'm Susanna. Doreen. I'm Esme. Georgietta. I'm Liz. I'm Ellie. Okay, Liz and Ellie, my question for you is, do you have any thoughts about Melania Trump? Um, (laughs) probably.
3: In, it, what kind, where? It's Just anything. Oh. Um, well. Um, I don't care for her. Don't trust her. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. I don't know. I don't really like think of her
3: that often
2: uh i don't know i don't talk politics
0: okay
3: Any i like- don't talk i don't talk i really don't guess look at pienso usted sobre la primera dama melania trump
0: i
2: know <laughs> oh god i don't want to answer it Quickly.
0: can i ask why you don't want to answer it
2: because she's not a lady of her own that's why I'm...
0: my name is kate and where are you from Kate?
3: i'm from Denmark.
0: Denmark, okay. Our question is, what do you think about Melania Trump? Do you have any thoughts or feelings about her? Yes,
2: and they are based on almost nothing.
0: She's dressed stylish.
3: Um, I could have wished better for her.
4: Well, you see, I don't want to say anything that might offend some people. (laughs)
0: So I'm going to turn the conversation over to Zelia. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Yeah, yeah, that's
4: what I'm going to say. I can't say anything nice about her, so I'm afraid I'm just going to have to keep my lips sealed.
0: I feel like there's sort of this internal conflict among many women where it's like on the one hand, she's complicit, and on the other hand, she's a victim.
3: I think I am more towards the side of complicity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you agree? I would
0: agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that calling her a victim seems like an
2: oversimplification to me um, I don't know if I, n- I don't know enough about the circumstances to say whether she's the victim or not but, and I mean the situation you find yourself in there are pluses and minuses so okay I take advantage I'm here with the most I mean
3: one of the most powerful men in the world why not get the best of it?
0: I think she seems really nice and a really pleasant person. And you know obviously, there's a lot of fun made of her and but she seems a very level headed person to me. I don't think she's stupid enough to marry someone that she doesn't love. I think people don't give her agency
3: you know just because she's just- you know whatever you think about Donald Trump and I you know I'd rather not comment but but she's she's got agency as a person you can't just say, oh, you know she." she's putting up with this or I think that's the wrong way to treat a woman in public life.
0: So there you go. That's great. Thank you guys so (laughs) much.
2: I mean, if we were going to like map it to something out in the real world, I was really thinking about all those white women that voted for Donald Trump. And I, it was a, it was a problem that was in the back of my mind. I was obviously furious. How do I understand them? Right? Like if I'm just going to say, if I'm not going to just call them flat out racist, Right. Giving them perhaps the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. What would be the, what else is going on there? And so that was kind of part of the journey of this book. What else what else is going on besides racism? Isn't that a terrible thing to say? Racism is just enough anyway, but but if if they were if there are people out there, and this is a Jewish family too, if there are people out there who would not describe themselves as racist. Mm-hmm. Like, what, but still voted for Donald Trump, because there were plenty of people who said that that was the case with them. What What's going on there? What is the, what is it? To me, it was about wanting to keep all your stuff. And that's that's kind of, was my starting point. I mean, this book is totally about capitalism. So I just kind of explored it from there.
0: She's made a deal with the devil in order to yeah. have a, quote unquote, nice life. Yes. Meanwhile, she's
2: getting the shit kicked out of her. Right. And she's totally miserable. Right. I mean, I think I did treat her with compassion, but at the end of it, I still don't really actually like her very much. I want people to read the book and have their own understanding of the book. And and maybe they do like her. And maybe they say, oh, it does remind me of my stepmother, um, who I've made my peace with. Mm-hmm. Because I also think, based on some of the press that I've done, people that I've talked to, they've just been like, oh, this is my family i don't know what to do i don't know how to talk to them we've really hit the wall so many people are hitting the wall right now with their families if they don't agree with them on politics it's just so much more volatile right now than i've i don't know that i've seen in my lifetime i don't know how you feel about it certainly that's actually a privilege that they can say i have financial security um, I have um, had an education. I have somehow within me enough confidence to know that I can walk away from this family. I'm independent. I'm independent and that, yeah. that they can walk away from it. I mean, that's like why writing up family is like is, is amazing for a writer because you can just write about America so easily. You can just deposit America. You just can keep adding family members if you choose. America is sort of like one big fucked up family. Oh, for sure. But everywhere is. Everywhere is. Yeah.
0: You write... This occurs in the past yeah. um, where Barbara's mother, who her kids are very attached to and who basically raised them and tried to protect her grandkids from their terrible father. Yes. She passes away, and they're grieving, and it enrages their father. And Barbara says to her husband, I'm sorry that her children don't know the right way to be sad. Ugh. God,
2: yeah, what is what is the right way to be sad for Barbara and for Victor? To not be sad. To just be. I mean, they meet in a uh, they meet a sitting shiva, and they're just ha- they're very wry. They have a very shared sensibility that this is all just, you know, it will be over soon. He jokes about killing her father for her at yeah, at, at, while sitting shi- shiva. Honestly, it's a very funny line. So. <laughs> I love a man with a sense of humor. <laughs> I love a man so. with a sense of humor. Yeah, um, Victor is like a very cynical about life in in general. He, I think he I think he thinks about things like he's wearing a skin suit and then eventually it's just like you die and then the skin suit goes away and then you're just dead. And he's just he's very um, he's a mercenary. He's just going to take whatever he wants in this life.
0: One Did, thing that I really liked about Victor was that everybody else has the luxury of having a backstory, but he doesn't really get one. Like. He, he just gets like a little one, a little bit, but he kind of arrives in our lap already a bad man. Yeah,
2: I I just don't care what his backstory is. I don't. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, I, I could outline with you the six points in the book that I made sure to give him a backstory, so I knew that I'd done my job as a writer. But generally, what I'm trying to say is like we know enough about who these men are, and it, if you swap in like you know you could swap in a million details, but you would eventually get the same. Kind of story out of it, and I and it's enough. I don't care. I don't really. I'm done listening. They've talked my ear off. You know, they're they're talking everyone's ear off, and it's it doesn't matter to me. I'm sure they'd like to explain to you. Like, sure, the story of their lives. Yeah. they're fascinating, fascinating men. I remember when I was in uh, in college, I worked at a country club in the summer, and I and I don't think I knew that that's how men were until that experience. And I remember every single one of those men would just say to me, oh, are you going to write a book about us? And I was like, you are the least interesting person I've ever met in my entire life. And it was like an entire summer of men just telling you how fascinating their lives were, right? It was was like a big turning point. So I think I know. I got it. I got it. I know who these men are. Look, ultimately, you did sort of write a book about them. Yeah. In some ways.
0: In a coma. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Put all of those men in the country club in a collective coma. Yeah. (laughs) Regis, I'd like to phone a friend. Hi, Chris. Hey. How's it going? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. So, Chris, when you and I met in college, your summer job was caddying at a country club.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: How did you... I mean, other people were like, you know, doing work study or waiting tables. How did you come to caddying?
1: I grew up on Long Island. And, you know, there are all these like really big, great, private uh, golf courses around Long Island. So it was just kind of like an easy way to make money and a lot of money (laughs) uh, quickly and and get paid in cash.
0: And did you guys know how to golf? Like did you grow up as a family <laughs> golfing?
1: No, of course not. No. No. I mean like no, I didn't know anything about golf. I was just like a clean cut looking boy. I just like showed up in a polo shirt and some khakis and then they gave me some golf bags and some golf clubs and then I mean so like the job is essentially, you know, a foursome of golfers will go out on the course and you're keeping track of all their balls and you're suggesting clubs to them. Um, but no, I knew nothing about <laughs> golf.
0: I take it that your family did not belong to a country club.
1: No, no, no. I mean, um, I come from like a pretty middle-class family. Um, caddying was really the way I paid my way through college and kind of chipped away at my student loans, you know? But certainly, no, my parents weren't members of these clubs. These The, the, the members of the clubs were all these like very high level CEOs and, you know, members of like, these are all people that worked at like private equity firms and, um, you know, like hedge funds and And, and, had had
0: you been around people like this before or was this really your introduction?
1: This was my real first, like introduction to, um, very powerful wealthy people and like how they treat, uh people like subordinates <laughs> um
0: i mean did they treat you 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 mentioned that when you started caddying into yeah. this day i should mention that you you were like a clean cut white boy yeah
1: right um yeah. i i had it good that's the thing it's like when when it was me caddying for them they were so excited because like i was the spitting image of what they wanted their caddies to look like which was like a clean caucasian nice young boy uh, but I also caddied with a lot of guys, you know, um, who would really come out to Long Island from places like East New York and Flatbush. Many of these guys were African-Americans, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Haitians. I had a friend from Cameroon. And these guys, to be honest with you, were, like, amazing. But it, it was interesting because they made members at the club. So it was so obvious how uncomfortable they made members at the club. Like, I had this one buddy, uh, Raheem. And like Rahim was, uh, he came in every morning from Flatbush and I would pick him up at the Long Island railroad station. So he didn't have to like pay for a cab to go to the golf course. So we became, you know, we became buddies with all these guys. And, uh, but anyways, there was like a strict, um, strict, like dress code at the club. You know, you had to wear, caddies had to wear these like collared shirts and khakis or slacks, no denim, whatever. Anyways, Rahim. You know, like he followed the dress code, he wore khakis, he wore a collared shirt, but he had like baggier clothes. So he would come in with like a triple XL Lacoste polo and like big hill figure khakis. But he was like he was following the dress code like he was following their rules. But it made the members of the club so insanely uncomfortable. And I remember at one point they members of the club actually asked the caddy master if instead of calling him Raheem, if they could just call him Reggie like, it was easier for them to say Reggie. And so that's what they did. Yeah, like, on the course, he was known as Reggie, but around us, he was Raheem.
0: What did your experience caddying with these country club members teach you about privilege, power, masculinity, whiteness, the patriarchy, any or all of the above?
1: You know, you sort of, like, quickly understand your own inherent privilege, too. You know, like, I definitely got tipped better than those other guys and the reason i got tipped was not because i was a better caddy i was definitely a worse caddy like roy and rahim 1000 and paul those guys were so much more experienced than me they were stronger than me so they could carry heavier bags they knew the game of golf much better than i did um but i would get tipped more than they than they were Or I would at least get tipped as much as they did because definitely because I was a white guy and because I was like polite white guy. Um,
0: Right, you reminded them of themselves of their kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Like I was like who they wanted their daughter to date. In fact, I think one of them tried to set me up with their daughter, which was pretty awkward because I knew their daughter from uh, I think. I think this girl, Allie, went to my high school and I was like, oh God, I would never, yeah, I would never want to date her. She was like, she was so mean. Uh, (laughs) I was like, no, I would never, but it was, I had to pretend, you know, it's like, I just, it was just crazy. It was like, we were all just pretending what was happening was okay. But yeah, I mean, you learn a lot about power and privilege in terms of like what you are inherently given. Um, when you're a white male on a country club golf course, for sure.
0: I want to come back to the excerpt that we had you read, Mm. because there's a lot about bodies in this book and women and their relationship to their own bodies. Mm. So Barbara, who is called Barbie by her husband, her mantra is is pretty and thin, thin and pretty. Towards the end, her husband comes on to her, again, sexually, and she says... To herself, this flesh exists, and thus you do too. And she seems to have reduced herself in many ways to, to to a body, to a thin body, and a pretty body. I guess how does this impact her daughter and her granddaughters?
2: Alex is trying to figure out how to view her body, and is pretty good about viewing her body as as a source of strength and something that will that will get her from from place to place and will give her energy and help her to be a good mother if she feels good about her body and uh, strong in the face of whatever's happening with her father. All those things, um, I mean, before she goes to visit her father, she goes to the gym, right? She gets her energy up by going to the gym. She gets that little rush going to the gym. Um, So I think she's done a really good job of it, but she talks about it and thinks about it, and I felt like it was an important conversation for a character to have. I hadn't written that conversation before. Definitely Alex. I think she's just trying to make sure that whatever her father did, she does not want to carry it with her anymore. and She definitely does not want to pass it on to her daughter.
0: There's a moment when she has a sexual encounter with a man in New Orleans, a pretty anonymous encounter, and he he grabs her ass and he, he mentions like, oh, like keeping it tight. <laughs> and she... Did you You, laugh?
2: I laughed so hard when I I was writing that.
0: I did laugh because also then it goes into her interior monologue which is like, I'm not keeping it
2: tight for you, brah. Like I'm keeping it tight for me so I can live a long and healthy life. Yeah. But then what she says is like, like, thanks. Yeah. She's just like, just shut up and say thank you so I can get to wherever I'm going to get to with this guy. Um, Yeah, it's, I, I'm glad that you picked up on that because I really, I wanted to show her struggle. But she had grew up in a house with a man who had like a garage full of porn magazines that didn't, not porn magazines behind the cupboard, but porn magazines just right out in the garage. So and that impacts the way that you see yourself.
0: And the one um, major act of violence, she's mostly spared, her brother is not, but the one major act of violence that he commits against his daughter is related to her weight. Right, it's when she goes through a chubby phase and
2: he comments on it. Yeah, and she lashes back and yeah, she comments on his appearance. Right. Yeah, it's a lot. I think um, in America to fight fight against the images that we see, Um, and I, but I think the kids today are doing all right. I'm about to be 48 next week, and I feel like it's so different now than it was when I was growing up. So it gives me like a lot of hope, and I feel like the younger generation in this book has a lot of hope.
0: You really feel that too. And this is sort of the afterward, when the youngest generation of the family, these two female cousins, are reconnecting as young adults. Um, And it really feels like, yeah, they're going through their own shit, but that they're gonna be okay. Yes, That they've somehow managed to disrupt this cycle of family violence and trauma. Um, How do we do
2: that? I don't know. We talk, right? We talk, we don't assume anything. I'm not a parent, so I don't know. But I, we write, we make art, I think, um, that discusses it or moves beyond it. We have to make things that look like the, th- the world that we want it to be. right? And and that's, I mean, at least as artists, I think that's how we start. I mean, I always have strong female protagonists. Complicated, flawed, but strong female protagonists. You'll never catch me having a book that stars stars a man. And even if this book is about a bad man, it's really not at all.
0: I want to ask about the cover of this book, which is a storage unit. Yes. The storage unit is actually a plot point. It's also a metaphor. Yes. Um, Family secrets. I'm curious about your last book, Um, All Grown Up, had more of a, like, quote-unquote, cover for women, <sighs> right? There, yeah. Much has been written about, like, covers for men, covers for women.
2: I've had all kinds of covers. I have lots of thoughts on on covers. I have seven books worth of covers and paperback covers and foreign covers and things like that. I mean, I it was the UK cover, and we used it here, and my editor said to me, this cover is a winner. But I, get, I think if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have had that cover. But I, it like, looked a little too fun or something or i don't know i mean i guess you're saying it's like a women's cover i thought it was i don't know i i trusted i trusted uh i mean it worked to a certain extent but it also meant that men were probably not going to pick it up well and that's my my question was is that in your is that in the back of your mind when you're designing this cover for example so i said to them one of my requirements was that there would be no woman on this cover Mm. I said, you figure it out, but we're not having a woman on a cover again because you get put in a box. You automatically get reviewed by women, automatically. Which I love women. I want them to review it, but I also know that there's a difference that comes with, and I want to have a balance. This book, I did not really get a lot of coverage in women's magazines. I got, but I did get more kinds of coverage. I mean, I want coverage in all the magazines, but I also don't. I don't want It. I don't want to prevent anyone from reading my work. Um, and I don't want to lie to uh, a woman who's going to pick up that book and think that it's going to be a fun rollicky ride. I mean, it's funny; it's a funny book, but it's also like a very dark book too. You well, know? also, I hope that men do read
0: this book, and I know that it's hard to get men this to book read or the, any book. Please read a damn book. <laughs> read, yeah. a book. Yeah. read a book. Yeah, but especially yeah. read a book with a female protagonist. And one that talks about toxic masculinity and cycles of violence, but I feel like you know
2: guys are so turned off by that. I mean, I don't want to make a sweeping generalization here, but I feel like men who don't read a lot of fiction because men tend to read Mm -hmm. nonfiction—that is a fact. um, Men who will read fiction will will read like maybe like one novel a month or one novel every two months, and that's not going to be the lady on the cover book. Okay, we are here at Greenlight Books,
0: our neighbor in Fort Greene, and my favorite local bookstore. Who are we gonna to talk to? Oh, we're gonna to talk to Jessica and Jared about book covers.
3: Um, I'm Jessica Stockton-Benullo. I'm one of the two owners of Greenlight Bookstore, and I'm also the events
0: and marketing director.
4: I'm Jared Anis. Uh, I'm the manager of the Fort Greene location for Greenlight Bookstore.
0: If you're recommending a book to someone, do you think about the cover do you ever have to explain away the cover to someone? Like, I know this cover looks lame, but you're really gonna like it.
4: Yeah, there's a there's a book that that I love very much. It's called um, Ice by Anna Kavan. It's a it's an older book, but um, that book has it's like never really had a good cover. And it's a, it's an amazing book. Um, but I always have to um, preface it with like, don't pay attention to the cover.
0: Let me describe this for our listeners. It looks like. It's like a photorealistic illustration of Anna from Frozen. <laughs> yeah, Anna, Elsa. Who's Elsa had, from Frozen. Yeah. I don't have children. Right, so. a, I mean, I'm generalizing, of course, but this seems like it'd be a hard sell to a man, or at least to a certain type of man. Sure. Um,
4: yeah. Like the type of... <laughs> if we're talking about if we're talking about people looking out at you, we just pulled out a couple uh,
0: titles by Carl Ove Knausgaard. who is are the same book. Wow, this is so striking, especially because you've just put um, put them next to the cover of Ice. So again, the cover of Ice is Elsa from Frozen, and then we have My Struggle, Book One, and it's that cropped in portrait of Carl Ove, the and pruning. his brow is furrowed, <laughs> and, he's <browed. laughs> and he's very serious and angsty. I know.
3: So, All the covers of Karl Ovik and Osgard's books in paperback have his have portraits of him on them. And he 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 kind of looks like a fisherman in real life. Like we hosted him for an event a couple years ago, but on the book covers he always looks like a rock star. Like kind yeah, he of looks a, like a slightly boy. terrifying rock star. Like and I
0: I wouldn't say that's not part of the appeal of the book. Sorry, Karl
4: Ovik.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but okay, I mean there is a kind of shorthand, right? Like right. you want to telegraph to your potential reader this will be right. a good book for you. Yeah. Um, and that's where the issue of gendering, I think, <laughs> often comes in. And there's been a lot of discussion about covers for women and covers for men. Yeah. How do you guys butt up against that in your jobs?
3: I mean, I, I have hopes that we're starting to move away from that. I feel like for a long time, there was a lot of like the cover was just like a woman's body part with no face. It was like, you know, it was like the, you know, just the chin to like, just under the eyes, or it was like a kneecap or like the back of a shoulder or whatever, and they often had titles like the somebody's daughter or the somebody's wife. So I I think there's, you know, we're maybe a little bit over that trend. Um, Are you looking for one? You want to talk about the
0: Ferrante covers? (laughs) Well, the the Ferrante
4: covers are are a good example.
0: Will you describe the the cover of this specific Fronte book?
4: Sure. It's uh, it's a rear view of, of a of a bride and uh, what looks to be a groom with uh, three little girls all in sort of bridesmaids dresses. And this is uh, my
0: brilliant friend, which is the first book in the Neapolitan series.
4: That's that's correct. And all of these all of these books. I mean, the book is about female relationships over time.
3: They're not chick lit, though. I mean, no, they're no, no. they're very serious literature, and there was a lot of sort of debate about these covers because they look kind of fluffy. They don't look as serious as the books are. At the beginning, at least, before Ferrante became sort of the literary phenomenon, you did kind of have to sell around the cover.
0: Well, thank you guys so much. I appreciate your taking the time. Sure, thank you. Anytime, thank you. I mean, I think that it is crucial that men engage with this
2: topic that is unpleasant and that women have to engage with all the time. I mean, my last book, I really like, I wished so many men had read that book. Like, I was like, here is a very incredibly female experience um, through all the stages of her life. And there's so much, there's so much in there about. Um, how men have impacted her and how men have treated her. I would have loved to put that book into hands of so many of so many men and say, maybe you could just try to understand the, what it's like for a second out there for us. It's a slim volume. Yes. It's fast, guys. It's a fast read. In the end, and as long as we're talking about the plot,
0: yeah. um, what brings Victor low is not all of the illegal activity that we've been told throughout the book that he is definitely up to. But it's sexual harassment. Um, That made me, it tickled me. Yeah. But also,
2: do you feel like that's... Do you think that's wish fulfillment? Yeah. I don't know. I think that it's happening more. I mean, I wrote it 20... Started in November 2017 and finished it summer of 2018. So there was like a lot of that that was going on. I, yeah, I did want I did want him to sort of get taken down by women rather than criminal tax courts. code, right? Tax code's boring. What? Although I will take whatever we can <laughs> right. do to I'll take, take these it. people. I'll yeah, take it. I'll take whatever. Yeah, um, tax code takes too long.
0: Was Kavanaugh happening
2: at all while you were writing? Was that the time frame? Kavanaugh was summer. I w- I had finished it m- mostly. I think I'd done. I was on like round for when Kavanaugh happened because I was on tour. I watched Kavanaugh hearings in Italy, actually. I was on tour and I had like two days off. And I was like, well, I guess one of my days off is sitting in this Airbnb in Sicily and watching and crying everything Thanks a fucking
0: on. lot, Brett. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Could be on the beach. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, Kavanaugh is playing into, I'm doing my next book is nonfiction. So he's playing, and that and that is also in part about bad men in a way. I don't know if you're on Twitter or not on Twitter. You might be a saner person if you're not on twitter but when all the me too stuff happening happened it was just this incre- insane experience online where every single person i knew on my feed that was a woman was because the men all kept their mouths shut was ta- sharing their experience and so it was just mm-hmm. days of 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 saying i'm so sorry that happened to you i'm so sorry that happened to, to you over and over and over again or feeling that way and just being very very sad for a long time i know that me too was uplifting I, or not uplifting, but energizing, I should say, for some people. But it was also like a massive traumatic experience, I think, and um, because it was, everyone was reliving everything over and over and over again. And um, and so, I had a moment where I I sat down. I haven't said this in any interviews, but I sat down and I I wrote every morning in a journal. Like it exists. There's this book that I should probably just burn. But it was like every terrible thing that a man has ever done to me that existed in one book, which is like. I've been getting sexually harassed for 30 years of my life because I'm 47. And it certainly started when I was 15 or 16. It still happens to this day. It still happens. I'll walk down the street and somebody will say something to me. 30 years of it. Like, it's just so, I mean, I didn't didn't think of it as 30 years until very recently because it it was happening, something happened and I just thought, how am I not done with this yet? Mm. Like, uh, and so I, anyway, I wrote down as much as I could remember and how it how i thought it had impacted me because i couldn't go f- any further with anything that i was working on until i did that and i really believe that you make the art that's right in front of your face and and then you move and then you move on but you ha- maybe you don't do anything with that art and this wasn't even art it was just cleansing i guess um, and that and i did that before i ever started this book i wanted to see if there was anything i any wisdom that I gained, that I, anything I'd learned. And so maybe in a, a couple places it, it's filtered into this book, maybe through Alex more than anything mm. else, even though I'm not her, but I think that there's that feeling of um, not, not being able to escape it no matter what you do. Was it hard for
0: you to remember all of those moments, especially ones that were decades old? I mean, I guess I, you know, speaking personally, the Me Too movement has helped me realize that there were many moments that I neatly yes. tucked away or, of course. you know, said weren't a big deal that obviously were sexual harassment.
2: Was it hard to recall those and dredge those back up? No, I remember. Hmm. I remember. I mean, I put them away, but we just live with it. It's. But I think that women, because it happens to us so much we're just like, all right, moving on. I don't want, feel like dealing with this. Or it's like another guy said something super fucked up to me on the street. You know, it's Tuesday. Of course somebody said something. Mm-hmm. But like all those, there's an accrual. There's an accrual in it, and it and it definitely takes its toll. And so we build these little defenses against it so that we can live our life. But I actually think that every, you know, we do need to acknowledge it from time to time. We can't let it take over our lives. That's the fight. We're like, women are like fighting for their lives and they're their personal strength and confidence and sanity every single day of our lives. We're doing it all the time. And it's not a thing that men are asked to do. Ever. I mean, sometimes, but really not ever. Not in the way that we are where we're targeted all the time. Right. So we build up, we like take care of ourselves so that we can function in the world. But the every once in a while we, you know, the dam has to break, I think. And women are literally fighting for their lives. Fighting for their lives not just Yes, Absolutely. all the time. Right. Every day we're fighting for our lives in a way in a way that men will never ever have to. Jamie Attenberg, thank
0: you so much for joining me today. The book is All This Could Be Yours.
2: It's out. Wherever you get your Please books, buy a thousand copies of it. Thank you.
0: special thanks to Sarah Casconi from Artnet. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, it would really help us if you would subscribe, if you would like the show, wherever you get your podcasts, if you would tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your mom, tell your enemies' mom, whatever. We appreciate it all. Thanks so much. Glitter in Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Bagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hoggesegg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Isham.